city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. After a Pennsylvania grand jury last year outlined decades of alleged sexual misconduct and cover-ups involving more than 300 priests, Pennsylvania just overhauled its child sexual abuse laws, abolishing the state's criminal statute limitations on future cases of childhood sexual abuse. In fact, to date, 15 states have extended or suspended the statute of limitations to include claims that could stretch back decades. States like New York, California, and New Jersey are among the eight states that even have look-back windows that allow sex abuse claims no matter how old. Never before have so many states acted pretty much all at once to lift the restrictions that once shut people out if they didn't bring claims of childhood sex abuse by a certain age, often their early 20s. Welcome to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a forensic psychologist, private investigator, and your host for today's show on faith and prosecuting sexual abuse in the church. Now, what all this means is yet to be determined, but I am sure our guest today can help us sort through some of these implications. John Weiner is a litigation and trial attorney who frequently consults with other attorneys in wrongful death, personal and psychological injury, and employment litigation. He has been practicing civil law since 1980 and was the lead author of the text on proving mental and emotional injuries. Welcome to the show, John. I'm glad to be here, Joni. So, John, how did you get involved in this work? In 1980, uh, I did get my first job, and it was working for an attorney who specialized in psychological injury cases, and within that, he specialized in sexual abuse cases. So I've been doing sexual abuse cases for what's going to be 40 years in another month or two. Do you represent primarily adult survivors of sexual abuse, or are you talking about parents who come forward with a child who's been sexually abused? Some of the work I do involves adults who are sexually abused, like patients who are abused by doctors and psychiatrists, and uh, I'm sorry to say even psychologists, and other kind of professionals. That's part of my work. Uh, Right now, the bigger part of my work is representing children who were molested. Sometimes it's recent and I represent the victims as children, but most of the time I am representing adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse, usually perpetrated by the clergy or other people in power. And how long is it? And I want to talk about the adults for just a minute. How long is it typically between the abuse that occurred and someone coming forward and you meeting with them? Well, with adults who were abused as children, um, then it could be anywhere from, you know, five, 10 years to 20, 30 years. And since the statute of limitations opened up in California or is about to open up in California and there is no age limit, I have literally Uh, talked to people that were abused in the 1950s who are now over 90 years old. Uh, Yeah, I think that's just fascinating that that all of a sudden victims who really have had no recourse for so many years, all of a sudden there's this movement to 
allow them to come forward and have a claim. I think that's fantastic. I think it's an extension of the Me Too movement, which kind of began with employment, sexual abuse cases, and then moved into the world of other kind of sexual abuse cases. And all of a sudden, I think everybody uh, is a lot more aware of the power differential between, let's say, the clergy or Boy Scout masters and and children. And because of that, they're coming forward because the law has changed. Also, it's kind of interesting. One time period where a lot of people come forward that were abused as children is when they have children that are the same age as to when they were abused. So in other words, if a priest abused them at eight and now now they're an adult, but their child is about to turn eight, they find themselves becoming very severely distressed, very overprotective of their kid. And at that point, a lot of them want to come forward. Another thing that happens is people, especially in the church and the clergy cases, don't want to come forward because their parents would have been so upset about it because they were very religious people. So another likely time for people to come forward is after their parents die and they don't have to worry about being embarrassed or to upset their parents by bringing a case. That's so interesting because I, my very first job out of graduate school was working almost exclusively with survivors or victims of child sexual abuse. I work with families and with children, and I heard that often from parents because it was not uncommon to see a child whose parent had been sexually abused and have some experience of their own at a certain age. I don't think this was the, I guess, the norm, but it certainly happened, you know, in several cases. And I heard some of the same things of parents really getting to a certain age and then seeing their child and having a completely different perspective on the fact that as a parent, either their response would be so different from maybe their parents or adults in their environment if they did disclose it at the time, but also realizing that that relationship was so unequal, you know, there's a child in an adult relationship. And I've heard people, you know, say, I didn't really get that so much. I mean, maybe I was 12 or 13 and this person was 30 and I somehow convinced myself that this was somewhat of either an equal relationship or I just didn't see what an incredible difference the whole power difference made. Right, right, Jenny, that's a really good point. And uh, part of it is that people that are sexually abused as children naturally as a natural defense mechanism as you know, as a, as a psychologist, uh, it's a normal defense mechanism to go into denial. And a lot of these kids that were sexually abused as children uh, have never been in therapy. Um, a lot of them, even the people that are calling me, they're 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years old. I am literally the first person they've ever told their story to. I am the first person that they've ever told the story to about their sexual abuse. I mean, can you imagine the amount of pain involved in holding that in for so many years? You know, unfortunately, I can imagine that pain. And I know that it is just devastating for people. And I'm wondering, I mean, that I would imagine puts you in a pretty interesting position because as a therapist in the past, when I saw people, it was kind of a clean context, if you will. The person's coming in. Right. Um, I'm totally there just to heal that person. And, and litigation can be another way to facilitate the healing process. But you know sure. that there's going to be some issues probably down the line. I mean, litigation can be a very stressful thing. 
So how do you yeah. prepare individuals for that? Well, um, Joni, when you have a, certain, a situation like where somebody is sexually abused and never talked to anybody about it, and I'm the first person they've talked to, um, one of the things I've learned in the 40 years of practice is to not play therapist. It's not, I don't know how to be a therapist. I don't know exactly how to handle this person um, bringing all this information to me. So what I have learned to do and what I try to do is I'll take just the bare bones of information I need to let me know there's a case. And immediately I will refer the client to a forensic psychologist or psychiatrist like you who can get the story in more detail. And most importantly, you will know how much the person's able to reveal at one time, when to push them, when not to push them, how to check in with them after to make sure they're going to be okay. I don't know any of that. So I feel like it's money well spent for me to spend the money to send these clients to psychologists for evaluations. So it sounds like you've learned over time, and I really respect this, that kind of to stay in your wheelhouse and find people who have different wheelhouses that can help your client. Right. Yeah, that's very, very important because, again, holding this stuff in for so long and then letting it out, um, you know, I'm sure initially everybody feels good about it. But the problem is, you know, what happens when they begin to ruminate about it, when they go home and think about it, then it could get really, really seriously disturbing and they need some help uh, and they need it quickly. And the help that they need is not the help a lawyer can give, it's the help a therapist can give. Sure. Now, you mentioned earlier that you, when somebody comes into your office, you feel like your initial job really is to evaluate and establish that this person has a case. So what kind of guidelines do you use in looking to see if this person has a case that you think you can move forward with? Okay. Well, there's a number of things we look at. Well, obviously, the first and most important thing is, is, the, is the person telling the truth? One of the differences between cases these days and sexual abuse cases that arise out of 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago is these days there's generally some written proof about sexual abuse because there's text messages, there's emails, everybody's got a photo on their phone. Um, that provides excellent proof. Now, when you look at the cases from the 60s, 70s, 50s, almost always it's he said, she said. So then you really got to you got to look at the credibility of the potential client. What we look to in those cases is we'll take the case generally if somebody says they've been abused by a clergy, but then we will report it to uh, the church, the particular church, and they will respond. And they may tell us, hey, this person was never a parishioner at our church. Or they may say, oh, yeah, yeah, we remember him. Or when we wonder about whether a particular priest uh, sexually abused somebody, it certainly makes it a lot more likely that the abuse occurred if we can show that five, six, 10, 20 other children were sexually abused at the same time. And so how do you find that out, John? Generally, if we're talking about clergy, it's an altar boy, almost always, or occasionally girls, and but very rarely. And they will come in and they will say, you know, I'm pretty sure 
that my friend, this guy also got abused. He never told me about it. Sometimes they have told him, told them about it. But really, ultimately, the best way about finding out about other cases is the way the courts are set up, at least in California, is once the statute of limitations opened up, like it will on January 1st, 2020, a lot of cases are all going to get filed at the same time. It's going to be hundreds of cases, maybe thousands of cases. And the first thing the courts do is they um, separate the cases based on the diocese and then within, within the diocese, particular uh, parish and within a particular parish, a particular priest. So within a several months of everybody filing their cases, or may, it might take longer, then we'll find out if there's been, you know, 10, 20 cases against one particular parish or against one particular priest. And then we'll find out if they move the priest from place to place and place to place. So plaintiff attorneys, which is what we are representing the victims, uh, are organized and are cooperative with each other to try to put together these kind of facts. So in evaluating credibility, and I'm glad you're speaking about this because, you know, whenever there is some change, I think, in victim access to either civil litigation or criminal, criminal litigation, but there are always people who are going to be like, okay, a lot of people are going to make these things up. And right. I used to investigate harassment complaints, and I can tell you very, very rarely did I find somebody just made something up. But that is a common, I think, belief that a lot of people have. And I'm wondering, in your experience, what percentage of people come to you that you feel like really are making it up? Well, to answer that question in a simple way, I do not believe I have ever, whether it's adults, children, anything, I don't believe in 40 years anybody has ever come to me and made up their allegations of what somebody did to sexually abuse them. However, what they do leave out is very frequently their own participation in the abuse. Now for children, that doesn't matter. It's always the adult's responsibility. Even if you're talking about, let's say a 17 year old uh, who's getting abused. Yeah, the next year they're gonna be legal, but you know, uh, 17 is, is still a child. But with the adults, what I often find, because in the adult abuse cases where we're suing like doctors, therapists, psychiatrists, often, and also in the workplace sexual harassment setting, often uh, people will come in and they will talk about being sexually abused, but they will forget to tell me their own participation in the abuse. I understand. How- so it's not so much that nothing happened. It's that what happened you discover is different than what they initially said happened. Right. I mean, it's a very different case if somebody says, let's say in the workplace, that my supervisor said that he wanted me to come over and have sex with him. And I've got that in a text message. And it's a completely different case is if the next text message, which they don't give me, the, per- the uh, victim says, oh, I can't wait to get over there. I really want to have sex with you very badly. Yeah, that would definitely put a different slant, put a different slant right. on that case. But you know, in the in the in, since we're focusing primarily on sexual abuse in the church, what kind of written documentation do you find in those cases? I certainly am familiar with all the emails and text and documents in the workplace. But what about when it's in a church? 
Well, what we do find is employment files of the alleged priests. And one of the things that we unfortunately learn all too often is uh, there is a record kept by the church of an allegation against a priest, and then they move the priest to another locale. That still happens. That's horrible and terrible, but that's what they do. They still move the priests around. And I actually had a case where there's a place in Santa Clara, California, where they send all the bad priests, all the sexually abusing priests, and I've had sexual abuse cases come out of there. Somehow, even in that setting, they manage to sexually abuse people. So is this a treatment center for these priests, or is it just another church? It's, it's kind of more like, it's more similar to like a nursing home where, you know, they're able to walk around and then they're just with each other and, you know, and then they're safe there, you know, as opposed to a prison where they're probably going to get killed. But yeah, it's it's an amazing thing. But I actually had a sexual harassment case by a male priest that was sexually harassed at that particular facility by a Monsignor. And so is treatment a component to this place or is it just more like it almost sounds like house arrest in a weird kind of way yeah i don't i don't know enough to say whether there's any treatment my gut tells me that there probably is some effort to try to treat but i don't think anybody thinks anybody could be rehabilitated and be put back in a position with children that i've never heard of and, and if i was a church i wouldn't let it happen and particularly when you're talking about multiple allegations um, over time, I think that would be a very difficult argument to make for sure. So I guess the million dollar question, John, is why are churches and denominations so willing to cover up sexual misconduct? Well, I think that, first of all, I think that they're probably less willing than there used to be. I think that the new Pope has made it clear that, you know, we're not going to just keep moving people around. So that is being done, but we're still de- dealing with the older cases which in which priests were getting moved around. And I think the simple reason was to avoid any kind of responsibility and hoping nobody would ever be able to compare notes. You know, it's kind of like I grew up driving in the late 60s and early 70s, and back then, if you got a ticket in another state other than your home state, your home state would never find out about it because they didn't have computers. They didn't have the ability to check things out like that. Now they do. But in the, uh, now the, the uh, churches do have the ability. But in the 60s, 70s, 80s, it was very easy for them to just cover it up by moving people, moving priests to a different location and just letting it happen again. And I... I'm not naive. No one likes to have a scandal. You know, there's the fear that it's going to taint our whole organization, except that when you're talking about a religious organization, I mean, I grew up in a church and, you know, you hear about, about values, you hear about principles, you hear about what the Bible says. And this is just so completely inconsistent with all of that, that I think it's difficult for me to get my hands around the fact that, this was something that so, was so pervasive for so long. And I'm so happy to hear that your, your perception, I think is valid, is that it's changing. But it's just difficult to kind of understand why it ever became such a systemic problem. 
Right. And, and the way I can answer that, it's not directly responding to what you're saying, but it's one thing I truly, truly believe that the, the Catholic Church, actually any church or even any synagogue, any kind of church, once they are sued in a case for sexual abuse, they become no different than General Motors or Ford or Chevron. They, they get what I call a bunker mentality. All they want to do is win the case and not make any kind of changes to help anything. They blame the victim. They do everything they can, and they try to be as nasty as they can to intimidate anybody else from coming forward. And that still happens today, unfortunately. That attitude breeds terrible things. Yeah, I can understand that. I guess people and organizations switch from kind of seeing the big picture to kind of survival mode where they're focusing on just kind of getting through that immediate situation. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk obviously a lot more about this. I'd love to hear about some of the cases that you've worked with, of course, without not breaking any confidentiality or anything like that, but I'm sure you have some very interesting stories. This is Dr. Joni Johnston. My guest today is John Weiner, who is a trial attorney who represents many victims of sexual abuse, often who were involved with the clergy. And we'll be right back on Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shine and sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. You know, John, I started out the show today talking about sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, but this happens in other denominations and religions as well. So, for example, the Southern Baptist had a convention last July to address some of the scandals they were facing. What has been your experience? Have you worked with a, a lot of different denominations or religions? Yeah, I have sued many different churches and a number of synagogues. But, you know, to be honest, it's just amazing how more cases there are against Catholic clergy than any kind of religious denomination. There's there's issues in religious denominations, but there's something about those priests and altar boys, that dynamic that really allows the priests, you know, have taken a, an oath of celibacy, which the people I talk to within the church think that that oath of celibacy really leads to the sexual abuse of the altar boys. I think that's something to be talked about even further. I, I agree that there's different dynamics when you're talking about priests who have these restrictions and celibacy and those kind of things. So help me understand, John, some of the fact patterns that you see in these cases. All right. Well, so what w- what you see is that the priests generally have some modus operandi of how they're able to sexually abuse the kids. The Probably the worst thing that they do is to say that Jesus wants this to happen. They'll tell the kid, you did something wrong. 
um, Jesus wants you to be punished and you will, you will become a holy person. What's horrible about it, obviously, than just the fact that these are children that these things are being done to, is the fact that it does completely blur um, the boundary between abuse and spirituality. So I can only imagine right. what that does to these children over time. Right. No, it does. And then, you know, some of the lesser things you see, which are still significant, is like, in, especially in Southern California cases, where it's generally warm, the priest will tell the altar boys or, or when they come over from the school, you know, they'll tell them to wear shorts. And then, and then so the boys, you know, will, will normally do whatever the priest says, right? Okay, and then they'll wear shorts. And then the priest will say, well, you know, it's really extra hot today. Um, so why don't you take your shorts off and get comfortable? You know, it's okay that you do that. Jesus, you know, w- wants you to do that. And then, so, and then Jesus wants you to become completely naked. So, yeah, so that use of Jesus um, combined with a lot of these boys, you know, coming from very strict Catholic uh, families, they can't go back to their mother and father and say, hey, hey, look, you know, this is what Jesus did to me. So they become very confused. And you're right, the lines get blurred and uh, they hold these things in. And also there's all this grooming that goes on. It seems like right. you know, there's just this like insidious kind of, I mean, there's obviously the cases that are just horrendous where somebody is, is sexually assaulted, you know, even as a child. But I often do hear, and I'm sure you do as well, where you have um, this kind of slippery slope where this one thing, start, like you said, like you were just explaining, this one thing starts happening. This person, you know, wants to sit next yeah. to you and then they take their shirt off with you. And then, you know, things just become worse and worse and worse over time. Right, right. You know, and some, sometimes I liken it, to, you know, when I was a teenage boy, you know, like a 17-year-old boy, and I'd be dating a 17-year-old girl, and, you know, I'd try to put the moves on her. And, you know, and the moves are, you know, let's go somewhere quiet, right? Somewhere we're going to be alone, which is generally the rectory for them. And then, you know, you know, would you take your shirt off? And then, you know, and then maybe the next day, would you take your bra off? And then, and so the same thing, so the priest is really doing the exact same thing. And the underlying thing that comes through what the priest is saying is, I really think you're special. I really think you're beautiful. I really think you're a a wonderful person. And I know you're having these issues at home or whatever, but I could take care of those. And so come here and sit on my lap. There's a very a lap sitting tends to be almost always a part of the of the abuse of the grooming part of it. Who knows about these about these situations? I mean, we know obviously from a big picture standpoint, but I mean, this is a tough question. How often do family members know that something is going on? Right. You know that really varies on the case. One of the common things I hear is kids who actually tell their parents, generally their mother, end up getting punished and and they're accused of being liars. And uh, that shuts them up pretty much after that. I mean, I I would think that if if my kid came to me and told me that she's being abused, that, you know, I I mean, the first thing I'm thinking about is, you know, we've got got to get her to therapy. We've got to get her away from the perpetrator. But these very, very religious families, the parents of the kids during the 60s and 70s 
and 80s um, would just not believe their children when they told them the stories. And all of a sudden, then the child's all alone. So who can they go to? So it, it, it makes them feel very, very alone. Is, is that changing, John? I mean, do you see that people are disclosing more to family members or to friends or family? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're doing it more, but now we're talking about younger people. So one of the interesting things that's happened since the statute of limitations has opened up, it's been now about six months that we know that the statute of limitations changed in California. So anybody of any age, no matter how long ago it was, can bring a case. I would say that of the people that are coming forward now, over 90% of them are probably over 45 or 50. And that tells me that maybe, maybe the church has gotten better in at preventing these kind of things from happening. But we'll see. We can only hope so. So how do we help victims heal? Well, that's a good question and maybe a better one for you than me. But I feel that, that generally, if they have a good case, it is, it is empowering to bring the case to, you know, to fight back against being badly, badly abused and, and holding this in for years. So I do find that bringing the case, if it's a good case and it ends successfully, is a terrific thing that we can do. I think getting them into therapy with true neutral therapists, where the patient and his family is able to choose the therapist, not the church choose one for them, that can help. I think educating parents can help. And I, and I do think that with all the publicity in the early 2000s around pre-sex abuse, that I think a lot of parents have woken up and no longer believe that a priest or nun can do no wrong. So, what, what about the stress of litigation itself? How do you deal with that? Well, How do you help your victims deal with it? Right. Well, litigation can be stressful. One of the advantages of being part of a group of victims who are all bringing their cases at the same time is that that they can get to know each other and have, they almost said like their natural support groups. So I, I think that's one of the ways that, to help people is to get them talking to other people. But litigation can be difficult. But what I was about to say is that if you're part of a group where there's you know, 25, 50 people suing the same parish or the same priest, it's not the same kind of difficult litigation as it would be if you're one-on-one against a parish or a priest, because everybody's going to believe you. And then the church doesn't have to do as much discovery to uh, attempt to establish whether the abuse happened. Pretty much, if, if you can prove that you were alone with the priest, you're probably going to win the case, and the church knows that. Okay. Did you ever get support from people inside the church? I know that Siobhan O'Connor, who was Bishop Richard Malone's executive assistant for three years, recently, in the past year or two, gave church documents to an investigative reporter. And that was really instrumental, not only in getting him fired, but bringing a lot of uh, victims to light. And the whole idea of a priest who's a whistleblower is something that I don't hear a lot about. Right, because there aren't a lot. So, yeah, you can get support. There are people out there, you know, that, that do whistleblow. 
but really and truly, the best way to get this out in the open is more and more people bringing cases, and then you could compare what's going on with a particular priest, a particular parish, or a particular diocese, and that strengthens the case. Absolutely. John, how does this impact the family of the victim? Um, so if are you talking about the family of origin or their new family? I think I'm talking about both. Let's talk about family of origin first. I mean, I would love to believe that in every family of origin, the minute a child discloses sexual abuse, the parents immediately believe it. But I'm sure that's not the case. And I would imagine that you've encountered some skepticism. Right. So, I mean, I can't tell somebody what the best thing to do is with a family of origin. If their parents are very, very religious, they're not going to want to hear this and they're not going to be very receptive to it. So I completely understand why somebody never tells their family. Occasionally, I'll have somebody come in and say, I'll tell my mother and my mother rushed down there and, you know, beat the priest in the head or something. That does happen, but it, it usually doesn't. I think that people that have been abused like this, like this do end up getting married, you know, just like everybody else, and hopefully they can talk about their experience to their spouses and even once it's age appropriate to the children. And within that, within that nuclear family, they can get some relief and they can get some direction on how to get better. You know, you mentioned earlier that the majority of the victims that you see are male. And I'm wondering, what does this do to a victim's sexual identity? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's very, very confusing. A lot of the victims are, let's say, between 9 and 13, right? Which, again, you know more about this than I do, but I assume that's a period where you're forming your sexual identity. A lot of people come out from this wondering if they're gay or not. Just because they let the priest... Um, sexually abuse them, they think that they must be gay. They uh, don't even think about the power differential. They just think, well, you know, I must be gay. Uh, The victims have orgasms when the priest sexually abuses them. That makes it even more confusing. You know, these are just boys, usually, with normal sexual instincts, and they, they do, at some level, get turned on by what happened, but at the same time, they're terrified and turned off. And that contradiction creates terrible, terrible mental disorders. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine that. Because I think you're right. I think 9 to 13 is such a critical age when you know puberty starts and hormones are flying around. And I do think that kids, male and female, are very vulnerable during those ages in terms of their sexuality and, and trying to figure out that's hard enough without some of these kind of issues. I also want to emphasize something that you made earlier, John, because we talked about child victims and then adults, but the power differential is a whole nother, I think, level because with children it's a double whammy you have the age and the adult and then you have this person who's revered in the church and is you know almost more than an adult you know this person is a religious leader but even among adults I mean I'm a a psychologist and you mentioned earlier unfortunately it's not that surprising to me to think that there have been psychologists or there have been psychiatrists who have sexually you know, molested a client and, you know, they may be the same age, but that's really not the point. The point is when somebody comes to see me or a therapist, 
they're in a vulnerable position. I have more responsibility in that case to protect that person, no matter what they're saying or what they're feeling, to recognize that this is not an equal relationship. That's right. And most of the victims of adult sexual abuse were abused as children. So they have a very bad boundaries. They have a lot of trouble uh, understanding what's normal and what's not normal. And as I had a client who sued a psychiatrist tell me once, um, when the defense attorney said, well, didn't you know it was wrong? She said, well, well, after my father had sex with me, why would I think it would be any different for a psychiatrist? So these are obviously, yeah, yeah, these are people who, who not not always, but sometimes have a history of trauma. And so those boundaries are already are confused when they come in. And so when it happens again, there is this kind of confusion about, well, this is almost normal for me. Right. And so when we're talking about, let's say, the young clergy abuse victims, I also represent these people, uh, usually different people, uh, once they've become adults and once they've become sexually abused by an adult, because I think everybody understands at this point that uh, childhood sexual abuse can lead to adult sexual abuse. I think it's definitely true that a significant number of child sexual abusers have been sexually abused as kids, but I think it's also important to point out that most people who are sexually abused never go on to become sexual abusers. That's absolutely true. I don't know if I've I probably had a few cases where that happens, but I think that's like a myth. And I do think, like you were saying, I think it's definitely true that when you when you somebody is sexually abusing children, you do look to see if that person has a history of trauma, and you know nobody is shocked or surprised if that's there. But you're absolutely right. I think far more people kind of go the opposite way, you know, where they're like, "This happened right. to me. Um, I'm going to make sure." It doesn't happen to any of anybody that I care about. And then they do become kind of hypervigilant about their children's safety. Right. The other thing I would add, and I can only imagine it's doubly true in this case, but I was often amazed when I worked with child sexual abuse victims at the resiliency of some of these children. And what I found right. is that the children who were supported by a parent um, who believed them, that was such a healing part in and of itself. And the flip side of that was when a parent, for whatever reason, denied this was going on, called the child a liar, was unwilling to look at that. In some respects, that response was equally, if not more, devastating to that child. Right. But on, on the other hand, it's kind of understandable. If you have a deeply religious parent who believes that going to church and respecting a priest is going to make you go to heaven, you don't want to give up that belief because basically, you know, in their mind, that can mean, oh, that I'm going to go to hell because uh, because this happened to my child. It's really complicated. It, it is complicated. I do feel the need because this is such a difficult and, and really grim kind of topic to talk about, you know, what can be done things already are being done. People are coming forward. Uh, the laws are changing. So we're in, in a lot of respects, a positive direction. We're moving in a positive direction. In your experience with the victims that you've worked with, what do you think would be maybe most effective? Um, and I'm talking about more like a, from, you know, it, within the church. I would make sure that every church had a lay person you know, who is not a super religious parishioner, 
kind of like an HR person, like a human resource person who could be the appointed person that children or any kind of parishioner could come to whenever they have any kind of a problem with sexual abuse or anything else. What you can't do is rely on the victim to go to the priest that's abusing them. And you also can't rely on the victim to go to the priest superior because often uh, victims think that the superior and the priest are uh, you know, tied together and support each other and will protect each other. You need somebody who's truly neutral, you know, especially if it's a big enough church where you can afford it, who you know, truly is a lay person and truly is neutral and is there to look out for the victim's rights. Kind of like a lot of police forces these days have an assigned person for sexual abuse cases and child sexual abuse cases where people can feel comfortable going to them. I think that would be really important. Well, I want to thank you so much, John, for coming on the show and and really giving us some practical information, but also an inside view of what it's like for you as an attorney representing some of the victims. And, you know, I think we can all read statistics and, and they're interesting and they're significant and important. But I think until you hear some of the stories, that really brings it to home. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, you're going to hear one of those stories. You're going to hear from Nancy and Lonnie, two sisters whose faith was shaken by their sexual abuse in the church, and yet whose faith also eventually helped them find justice and heal. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field, and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police at Amazon.com. In October of 2015, a former pastor of the Richmond Outreach Center named Geronimo Aguilar was sentenced to 40 years in prison for sexually abusing children. Aguilar, who was known locally as Pastor G, began sexually abusing two sisters when they were just 11 and 13 years old. These girls, who are now women, spoke to me about their experiences and how they found the courage to speak up. I met Geronimo when I w- we were very young, um, probably maybe six or seven years old at his dad's church called Set Free, which was in Anaheim, California at the time. Um, he started attending the, the church and my family was already there. So that was our initial introduction to, to him. But it's when our family left Set, the, free. Set free, the church, Bill's church, we left with his son, Geronimo, when I was 11. And I was nine. Lonnie was nine. And we moved to Riverside County with him. He lived in our house with us. And then that's really when we became much more intimately acquainted with him. And what were the circumstances surrounding him living with your family? I remember our parents throwing all of our stuff in trash bags in the middle of the night. And we loaded up a car and we all left together. So I guess the church was going through some things and I don't remember those details very clearly. Yeah. Phil had been under 
the the eye of the community like there were accusations of like sexual immorality stuff that was going on at set free and as a result of that people started leaving the church and um the church became less stable and that i think ultimately is what what motivated my parents to say we're we're leaving and geronimo knew that the church wasn't going to be doing well and he also had he was married at the time but was having what we know now an affair um with a young girl and she lived in riverside county in lake elsinore so we ended up moving our family ended up leaving with geronimo to lake elsinore mm -hmm. we moved into a house right down the street from where that girl lived so you moved geronimo came with you and then what happened well um we were in lake elsinore for a couple of years um for me that's when my relationship with Geronimo started to get not right. Um, we lived in a really small house, which had technically it had one bedroom and then like two open living spaces. And me and my sister, I, I had at the time three sisters, um, Lonnie, Denise, and Marin. And me and Denise and Lonnie, there were like two full size bed in this open space. Area, area right off the kitchen right off the kitchen where we would sleep um and so with geronimo being there sometimes i mean that basically led to him wanting to come in and he would lay in one of the full-size beds beds with us sometimes just casually starting to to come in and yeah we had one bathroom so that was yeah. always a weird thing as well we kind of had a I know it sounds strange, but it was like an open door policy right. because there's one bathroom. You can't lock it. If anybody needs it while you're showering, you know, you have to leave the door unlocked kind of thing. Yeah. So that's really when pretty quickly when things got started to get weird between me and Geronimo. Mm -hmm. And how old were you, Nancy, at the time? I was 11. Okay. And so during this period of time, you saw him as what, a family friend or religious leader for you what what were you what, how did you see him during this time i didn't necessarily see him as a religious leader because he never personified that um too intensely his focus was always more on like making music. christian music rap music and then if he got a show he might give an altar call or something to invite people to ask jesus into their heart but that wasn't the emphasis. The emphasis was, was the music side. So he was doing Christian work, but he wasn't necessarily a Christian leader at this time. Right. Yeah. And so when did things progress, Nancy, in terms of your relationship sexually with him? It started in Lake Elsinore, but it stopped um, because I got really like scared at one point. Um, he tried to kiss me at one at one point on the couch and I jumped out of the couch and I think he got really nervous and he like maybe a few days later tried talking to me about it and I didn't have anything to say. I didn't say anything to him. So he backed up but was really nice to me, like really, really nice. Um, Do you want to go get ice cream with all of us? Like very inclusive, trying to be like a, a nice, a nice guy. Um, and I think probably in retrospect, because he was nervous that I was going to say something, but I never did. 
um, well, I, I didn't say anything to my parents. I said in, uh, at one point I had confided in like another little friend. We were in Lake Alsmore for six, like about three years. And he had moved to Texas after he married Samantha. And they were there for maybe about a year before my family followed him out there. And um, once we did, at that point I was 13. And it progressed very quickly after we got there. People often ask me, like, how does it get started? Like, how does the person talk you into it? What are, what are you thinking? So help me understand how he actually progressed things. Well, I think for me with Geronimo, just the circumstances of living in this, like, this church that had like this celebrity type pastor, this guy with this awesome rap group and these dancers, I definitely looked at them as, wow, these are really cool people. And at 13, that hadn't changed when we got to Texas. I was definitely dealing with um, seeing boys and, and being interested in boys and um, that kind of thing. So when I got there, I still thought like he's still cool and he's he's cute and that kind of thing and I think he knew that already because um, a lot of the girls a lot of the women there were a lot of people who were doing things with him besides the, the young girls that he was with when we first got there mm -hmm. he found a house for my parents and him and his wife moved into that house and it was maybe a couple weeks or a few weeks after we got there that he sent her back to California for a month. And that's when the sexual abuse started. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing to me is so typical for thinking like a 13-year-old. There's this cool guy, you know, he, you've known him for a long time. He's a rapper, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't explain to me what he's thinking. I mean, you're a child. It's a hard part for me because at the time, even when we went through the trial, I really wanted to be brutally honest about, about it. I didn't want to walk in there. And I, I didn't walk in there at the time saying, like, I was this rape victim and feel so sorry for me. I didn't do that. I, I went in telling them the truth that I thought I loved this guy. Like, and I thought this guy loved me. And a hard part for me mentally was people saying to me, no, it's, it was abuse, Nancy. Because my parents didn't tell me it was abuse. A lot of the people, when it all came out, it, I took the brunt weight of, of the responsibility. Lonnie, how much did you know of what was going on during this time? Well, I, I had my suspicions um, about what was going on with Nancy. But the first time that that was confirmed to me was um, probably short, like right directly after my first sexual encounter with Geronimo and it was it was so confusing and scary for me at the time I was a, a, about 11 10 or 11 11 now, did the two of you actually talk at all about this when it was happening no no <laughs> mm -mm. I didn't know about Lonnie until um, probably I don't know when it started with Lonnie, but I, I know, I remember when I realized um, was shortly before our, like it all came out about all of, about me. And so how did this all come out? 
Lonnie. Yeah, I told somebody. I told a family friend who was living, was with, living with us. Lindsay. Yeah. And what happened then? Things had started to get a lot more, like it went from just touching to um, actual intercourse. And for me, at 12 years old, I couldn't, I, I didn't, I felt like I was kind of going a little crazy. I didn't want to be like excommunicated. Like I was scared what that would look like if I said something. So you were scared, Lonnie, of what other church members would say or think about you or what were you scared well, of? Just, I think more, it was, it was more my family because again, we had all been living together. So Geronimo still lived with us at this point. And our parents were so devoted to Geronimo. Very they devoted. They were so devoted to my Geronimo. My mom called him son, like my son, yeah. you know, and, and he, he called her mom and my dad just, my dad was, loved him. And, um, so, and this was what our parents wanted. They wanted to do outreaches. They wanted to grow this rap group thing into something really big. They wanted to have a church like set free, yeah, but they wanted Geronimo. to do that with Geronimo. And our family was, was in a lot of ways very dependent on Geronimo. Mm -hmm. So like every house we lived in, he's got set up for us to live there. Like for the most part, my dad wasn't working. The work he was doing was outreach related, which would generate enough money for, you know, all of us to live in a, in a communal home, get the rent paid, get some food on the table. So you felt like, and it sounds like there legitimately was a reason to believe this. There was so much at stake. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. And you know, when I, when I did finally come out, I, I think what I was looking for initially was just somebody to talk to about it. My intention wasn't um, for him to get in trouble. Yeah. But, I, but you know, at the same time, I was, I was scared, you know? So, so you told a family member and what was this family member's reaction? Well, this was a friend of the family. Um, okay. And she was probably about like 16 mm -hmm. or 17 at the she time. 16. And when I told her, she became angry, like mm -hmm. immediately. Yeah, she did. And with you? No, she was not angry with me. But I was surprised at her reaction. Like it wasn't something I had anticipated. Um, and then she started questioning me. That just I think I kind of probably clammed up a bit. But um, yeah, she became angry, and she she went to her parents, and she went to our parents mm -hmm. about right it. away, right away, like immediately. So she was angry that this had happened. It yeah. sounds yeah. like. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because you know what kind of comes across to me is the fact that there are so many confusing parts of this. I mean, you've lived with this person for years. Your parents have been involved with him uh, financially and emotionally. I can see how that would be incredibly confusing. Yes, it was, <laughs> to say the least. And so how did your parents react? They were angry, but it felt almost as if they were more upset they were angry at, at me. Us. Yeah. Um, yeah. It did. They did, though, tell, they asked Geronimo about it. My dad knew at that point that he had to tell Geronimo to leave. Um, 
I don't know exactly what conversations my parents had with Lonnie, but I remember my mom, I was in the bathroom at the time. My mom came in and asked me, is this happening with you too? And I immediately said, no, you know, I, I totally lied about it. Um, Geronimo moved out, but um, eventually I confided in my mom about what was going on with Geronimo. And so she actually allowed me to keep seeing him. Like my dad had to go get a job. He got a job at doing construction. And Geronimo, would, when he was gone, would still come and he would pick me up and still spend time with me. And that went on till I was about, I was 15. So when you say spend time with you in a sexual way? Yes. So she, she knew what was going on. She said, I believe you love him. You know, he can come get you today or whatever, you know, for a couple hours. And he would, he would come pick me up. And so like, while this is going on, there's other people involved. There's other people who, who see it. And a lot of these people testified in court. Eventually, Geronimo moves to Virginia. Virginia. And that's when like the real break happened. And that at that point, I would say, at least for me, that's when I was like, I'm just going to try to deal with my life. And then we found out about the other girl in Virginia. So there was a man who knew that there were things going on with a young underage girl at Geronimo's new church in Richmond, Virginia. And he wanted us to speak to this girl. And what gave both of you the courage to testify and to follow through with this. Yeah. It was, it, there were times where I think we looked at each other and talked about, do we have to do this? Like, and I think we even asked <laughs> whoever do we have to do at one point, like, do we have to, can we choose just not to move forward? Can we just not do this? Like we want to be done with it. But I think really it's just, it comes down to the grace of God. And I think he just gave us the strength and the courage that we needed to do what was right. Well, I, th- I definitely think that you have made a huge impact in so many ways. I completely understand anybody not wanting to go through a trial or testifying. I have no judgment whatsoever. At the same time, there are so many perpetrators who do it again and again. And sometimes it does take somebody to kind of say, I'm going to be that one. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and you're listening to Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud.